morning again. So thankful uh, that you're here and that you're worshiping. We've been in a long march, uh, if you want to consider it that, through the book of Colossians in the New Testament. I think we've been in Colossians 3 for uh, like six years now, and uh, which is not a bad thing. There are certain chapters of the Bible that really contain like everything you need to understand Christianity. I would say like Romans 8 is one of those chapters, or Romans 12 is one of those chapters. And that's not to say that there are more or less important chapters of the Bible, just that there are places that really contain all that the Bible is trying to tell us. And so a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that, that the gospel calls us to Christ-likeness, that the real evidence of spiritual maturity is a sense of being like Christ. And what, what Colossians 3 does is it transitions quite uh, rapidly from what that description of like Christ is to what it means to live like Christ in our homes and our marriages. And then what it means to live like Christ in our homes and our relationship with parents and kids. And then we'll come in a, a few weeks to where it talks about slaves and masters. And I realize that has some uncomfortability to it. But I want to talk openly and honestly uh, about the world of slavery then, the world of slavery now, because I, I don't know if you know this, but slavery still exists in the world today, and how Scripture argues for the value of every human being created by God. And so we'll get there. But today I want to talk about our homes and living out Christ-likeness in our homes in relation to parents and kids. And, and I thought this week, as soon as I say that, a bunch of you are going to say, oh, that doesn't apply to me anymore. Or that never applied to me because I don't have kids. But I want you to realize this applies to all of us, and we'll dig into why shortly. How many of you, how many of you have had kids? All right, that helps to know. How many of you never had kids? All right, that helps to know. How many of you still are kids? The most of us, yes. I think that's why you're here at Harvest Community Church. We are a great church uh, for kids in general. And uh, today I want to particularly talk about how to help our kids discover who they are in Christ. Because quite honestly, when you read the Bible, you see a few good examples of parenthood in some of the humans described there. And you see, quite honestly, even among some of the spiritual heroes, some really bad examples of parenthood. You know, David spent most of his time consumed with himself. And if you look at how his family devolved and eventually just obliterated themselves... I think some of that falls back, frankly, to David not being who David was supposed to be as a parent. So this is what the Bible says. And if you have your Bible, read it with me. If you don't have a Bible, we keep Bibles in the back. You can take one of our Bibles and consider it yours. It's really good. Like, like four weeks ago, there were five Bibles sitting there. Today, there are two. That means three Bibles have been taken in the last few weeks. I'm really excited to see that. Right? We just need to keep putting Bibles out. People need to keep taking Bibles. As always, if you don't have one, you can take one of ours and consider it yours. So Colossians chapter 3, there's not very, this isn't very long. and I, I counted it at some point, but I don't remember the count. It's, it's not very many words. 
Children, this is Colossians 3.20. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers. Which, by the way, the word fathers here in other places is sometimes translated parents. So I don't want you to think the scripture is leaving out moms. Fathers. Do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. He, in a sense, gives us these polar extremes where there's very much a sense that that on one hand, we're to teach our kids respect and obedience and the importance of that. But on the other hand, we can go too far. And we often do go too far to the point where our kids are embittered. Or as it will say uh, over in the parallel passage that's very similar in the book of Ephesians, it'll say, uh, do not... Do not exasperate your children. So don't embitter your kids. Don't exasperate your kids. That's a pretty good word. At some level, this command has a do and a don't to it. The do is teaching them to obey the Lord and honor the Lord. Raising our kids in a way that they want to obey the Lord and honor the Lord. But where they learn that is at home. So let me say it another way. Where do you think the greatest place is where kids will learn to be like Christ? And yet today, we tend to think the greatest spiritual influence in our kids' lives is the church. That we want the church to be the the Jesus teachers... Right, that, that we have great people. Julie and her team. Thank you, Julie. Thank your team. And we tend to think, you know what? We, we have these great people who can explain the Bible to our kids, who can answer their questions, who can be great role models. And there's nothing wrong with having great role models. One of the things, Marcy and I, I, I would tell you, one, we're, we're not experts at this. In fact, I never knew more about parenting than before I had kids. And now that my kids are college age, I think I know less than I ever have. But that said, I certainly know that we valued having other adults in our kids' lives who could influence them especially as they got older and into those moments where they were dialing down how much they were listening to us. So what I want you to see today is the home is the primary place where kids are influenced in Christ-likeness. Easily, by far. But the second most influential place is family. And I don't know if you know this, guys, but we're... We're family. We're family. So again, there's a do and a don't. The do, teaching them to obey us and the Lord and honor the Lord with their lives. The don't, don't embitter 
don't exasperate. In some sense, we see in this exactly what all of us parents kind of know intuitively. On one hand, we want to protect our kids from something. And on the other hand, we want to prepare our kids for something. And it's, it's just built into us. They're born and we're instantly thinking about protecting, right? I loaded my babies in the car, in the car seat after spending like six years figuring out how to get the car seat just right in the back of the car. Of course, when I was a kid, the car seat was um, the front, middle, well, not when I was a baby, but I remember being like three, four years old and standing in the middle seat between my parents and my seatbelt was dad's arm. Until we were in a car accident where I almost went through the windshield. Suddenly, I didn't get to stand in the front seat anymore. It was a real bummer because I couldn't see from the back seat, you know. But, but with our kids, right, right we, we had baby seats and then booster seats and all the things. And I remember spending like forever trying to figure out how to get that safety seat in just right and face backwards and all the things that go into that. And we... We loaded Michaela and later Nicole into those babies. I remember walking out of the hospital and thinking, I better drive slow. Because it's built into us that we want to protect our kids. But as they grow, we've also got to prepare our kids for this world in which they will live. And again, we sort of end up in these two extremes where... To do one keeps us from doing the other, if that makes any sense. In fact, and don't misunderstand this or take this wrongly, but I think what I often didn't realize is even my own need to protect them from me. I'm not talking about abuse, so again, please don't misunderstand. But fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. See, in my great influence in their life, I can push them in ways that aren't helpful. And so learning to change as they change, because, because one of the great things of parenthood is that it's an ever-changing process. Your kids are never the same. You're never raising the same kids. When your kids are one, they're different than when they are at three, and they're different at five than they are at four, and all along the way. In fact, parenthood works a bit like this. You're always playing catch-up from behind because as parents, you're trying to figure out, and it, let's be honest, parenthood is harder than any of us expected, and at the end of the day, about the time you begin to get a handle on thinking, I okay, we're finally doing all right at this parenting thing, everything changes again. Either the kid changes, or you change, or the world changes. And in most cases, all three of the above. And so we're always learning and shifting and relearning. And through all of it, learning to trust the Lord. Really learning to trust the Lord. So aside from the Lord himself, I just want us to realize, and the one thing I'm trying to convince us of today, is that the greatest influence in my kid's life is me. And that, quite honestly, gets a little scary. Because never more so did my kids 
get under my skin than when they looked and acted like me. When I saw my flaws in their eyes. And it shows me how easy it is to want grace for myself, but not want to extend it even to those I love. You know, it's very popular today to think along the lines of kids should be allowed when it comes to important things like religion, kids should be allowed to figure it out for themselves. And I hear that a lot these days. But it's not a new thought. It's been around for a while. That, that kids should not be influenced by their parents. That, that we're not going to make our kids come to church. That kids should be allowed to figure it out for themselves. So I was reading about this uh, British poet, uh, Samuel Taylor uh, Coleridge who had a discussion with a man who firmly believed just what we're talking about, that children should not be given formal religious instruction, but should be free to choose their own religious faith when they've reached maturity. I don't know, what age does that happen? Because you just told me you're all kids. So Coleridge did not disagree or argue with him, but later invited the same man into uh, another occasion back to his house and showed him his somewhat neglected garden. And the man said, you call this a garden? The man said, there's nothing but weeds here. And Coleridge said, well, I did not wish to infringe upon the liberty of the garden in any way. I was just giving the garden a chance to express itself. Sadly, we do the same with our kids, allowing the spiritual weeds of this world and the unspiritual weeds of this world to easily grow up. You know, the greatest influence in my kid's life is, is what happens in our home. And it's frankly not what we say, it's what we do. It's how we live. Remember, all of this goes back to clothing yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another and forgiving and being gracious with one another and putting above, uh, uh, above all of them, binding them together in love. Is this what my kids see in my home? You know, it's interesting. I'm walking a different journey now with my kids as young adults. But I wonder when they come home, is this what they find? Before we get into the application side of this, I, I want to give us five things our kids need from us. But I want to come back to something I said a while ago. Okay, so the greatest influence in our kids' life is, is, is us as parents. But the second greatest influence in our kids' lives typically is family. And what I want us to realize for just a moment is that there's, there's, the, there's the family you're born into and there's the family you choose. And the family you're born into, you don't get much say on, right? Crazy Aunt Sally or Uncle Joe and you get together at the holidays and they're always saying stuff or 
arguing about some political thing or it's uh, everything deteriorates after the fifth drink or or, or uh, does anybody else have a crazy you know like like again kids we're thinking protect and prepare right and one of the ways we protect and prepare is thinking about putting family in their life who is a good influence. So often there are grandparents, there are aunts and uncles, there are others. Not everybody in the family is crazy, we hope. If you look around your family and you think nobody is crazy in your family, then they might all think it's you. (laughs) But the bottom line is you're going to know who's a good influence in the family and who is not. But I want to, by extension... Have us think just for a moment about the church as family. Because there are these great images in the Bible, certainly. Julie forwarded me some articles this week, and we were talking about some of the changes that are happening in kids' ministry and student ministry and some of the research that's emerging about kids who practice their faith when they get older, who are raised in the faith but then continue to practice it. Because you would know that the vast majority of kids raised in church, have a period of time where they sort of drift away in those college-age years kind of thing. And what does research show us about those who, who want to and continue to embrace the faith? And a lot of this comes back to having a church that is family. In the Bible, we're called the body of Christ. We're called the bride of Christ, the church. But we're also called the family of God. And so this one article that Julie forwarded to me said, one of the models we really need to be thinking about is how the church is a family of families. And I like that language. That what we are, gathered and scattered across our community, is a family of families. And what our kids need is a connectedness, not just to our homes, but to other homes in the family of families. In fact, it's historically thought that in kids' ministry and student ministry, you're always looking for certain ratios. To create a safe environment, you always want you know, one adult for every three kids or five kids or seven kids, depending on how, how old those kids are. You know, If you went into the kids' building on a Sunday morning and Julie was there by herself and there were 30 kids running around, we'd think 30 kids was a great Sunday, but it would be a zoo, wouldn't it? Right? It, 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 it would be chaos. And so we think as people who are you know, in programming mode, we're thinking about appropriate ratios and how to create safe environments for kids and how many can fit in the room and how many adults you need in ratio to those kids and how to make sure that there are windows on doors and how kids are never uh, alone with an adult. And there's all these kinds of things that we think about. But some of this newer research is saying we should turn the stats on their head. Instead of one adult for every five kids or seven kids, we should flip it. What kids really need in the church is five adults for every one kid. And all of the program-driven ministries hear a stat like that and go, you're nuts. Like, I'm never going to have that many volunteers. But that's because we're looking at the church wrongly. We're looking at student ministry and kids ministry as 
programs, as places to hand our kids off to so that the kids get spiritual programming. Again, thinking that that's the greatest spiritual influence in our kids' lives. But what our kids really need is other adults in the church who can be present in their lives, who know them by name, who pour into them in different ways, whom they're safe around to live out the faith. In fact, I was reading about one of these churches, and this article was pointing out that one of these churches looked at their Sunday programming for students and thought, man, we're doing this backwards. And they had this radical idea that they were going to send their middle and high schoolers to church, to the gathered worship service of adults with their families. What a radical idea that kids should gather together and worship together. I, and I thought to myself, man, I wish I'd thought of that. Sorry, I'm joking. We, we've been doing that for a lot of years, right? Our middle and high schoolers are, they're not here at the moment because what middle or high schoolers up early? But our middle and high schoolers are in our worship services that we extend serving opportunities to our middle and high schoolers that we, we want them to help lead worship or be involved in greeting or serve in kids' ministry. Because that exposes, hear the word rightly, that puts the right influences around our kids so that there are other spiritually minded adults that are good influences in their kids in our kids lives does this make any sense family of families i think it's important we live this out here's what that means church if how many of you said you don't have kids and how many of you said you do have kids and how many of you would say your kids are already grown and like launched it's again majority of us Guess what? We all have kids that are all our responsibility. I don't mean that you're their parent. I don't mean that you're my kid's parent. But I do mean that when my kids at their ages or younger kids at even their ages step foot around our church, that you have an influence in their life. And I want you, not as a pastor, but as a dad, to use that influence just as this is saying. To help them learn to please the Lord, to not embitter them or to help them become discouraged. But in a spiritual sense, make them see that being like Christ is a good, even great, great thing. So as I talk about parenting today, and as I talk about raising kids and helping them discover who they are in Christ, that's not a word for the few of us in this room currently who are actively raising our kids right now. That's a word for all of us, because we all get to play that role to some degree or another. When you're greeting on Sunday morning and you high-five those kids, Man, that makes a difference. When you're volunteering over in the kids' building, man, that makes a difference. When we do an event where we have 200, 300, 500 kids on campus, man, that makes a difference. When we influence kids 
towards Christ-likeness, it's huge. So what do our kids need? I'm just going to look back through the text, get super practical, and I want to give us, I think I had five answers to this, yes. Uh, five, five, uh, five, I didn't give it a category, but let's just say five influences that our kids need. Number one, our kids need, my kids need, to see me love Jesus in everyday life. That is to say that modeling is more important than teaching. That modeling, let's, let's say it this way, I'm a pastor, you, that seems abundantly obvious. Let's say when my kids were 5 and then 8 and then 12, that what my kids saw was me talk, 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 but go home and then not live, live, live. If that's what my kids observed through their entire childhood, that dad would talk about Jesus, but not try to live like Jesus... If it was talk about love and grace and maturity and wisdom, but not try to live forgiveness. And what do you think that would do to my kids? What would they want to do with Christ if what they observed in me was not Christ likeness? And I'm not talking about perfection. Just the direction of Christ likeness, wanting to go in that direction. If they saw me not walk the walk and walk the talk for that matter. They'd want nothing to do with my Jesus. Because they would see that it made no difference in my life. And so if I'm the greatest influence in their life, then the greatest thing my kids need is to see me want to live like Jesus lives and love like Jesus loves. The corresponding passage for this, again, children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Over in Ephesians, where there's a very paralleled passage, it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The terms here are coaching kinds of terms. The interesting thing about parenthood is that, that you play a lot of roles. There are a lot of hats we wear as parents, isn't there? The older our kids get, the less we get to get away with things like, because I said so. Do you remember when your parents said that to you? Sure they did. They did, didn't they? Your parents ever said it to you, because I said so? All right, when you were five, because I said so might have worked. Probably didn't, but it might have. But when you were 15 and your parents said, because I said so? Right? Every kid. Why? Why? It's like they're born asking that question. Right? They're hungry. They have certain needs. And they want to know why. To everything. And the older our kids get, the more they need to see the whys, not just hear the whys. So I think about, like as a church, as a family of God, we often think about these three loves that hang over here on the wall. That we're often in the mode of helping all of us love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And we're often thinking about how we learn to love one another and love people as Jesus loved people. And we, we quite frankly are often in the mode of thinking about how we love our community and love the world the way Jesus loves the world. What if my kids saw me live out that life at home? How powerful would that be in observing that 
in their dad or in their mom's life? What do my kids need? They need to see me love Jesus in everyday life. Number two, my kids need to know what really matters. They need to know what really matters. In fact, really beyond that, they need to know who really matters. They need to know, one, that they matter to God, and two, that they matter to you. And then they need to know what really matters in life. We've talked about this verse before, Proverbs 22, verse 6. Right, The old NIV, I just like the way it says it, it says, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. I think about us dads particularly, there's a lot that we want to teach our kids how to do. We have boys, we want to teach them how to throw a ball of some kind. Right? We have girls, we want to make sure there's certain things. Right? As dads, we're like, all right, you need to know how to change a tire. I remember how big it was in Oregon to make sure my girls knew how to pump gas. Right? Because in Oregon, you don't get to pump gas right? until recently. Right? And so I, we would travel on vacation as soon as we hit another state and it was time to get gas I'd say, you gotta, you got to pump gas. I don't know how to do it. I'm like, you're going to learn. right? Here's the card. What do I do with the card? Here's the, do I have to talk to a person? No, you can do it yourself. Right? There's a lot of things that you think that's a, a funny, silly thing for your kids to know how to pump gas, but try being the kid grew up in Oregon and you get out of state and they've never pumped gas before. Like, it happens. Right? I, I wanted to make sure my kids knew how to change a tire. They actually did it a, a year or two ago. I was like, they called and said, Dad, we changed the tire. <laughs> I did something right. Proud dad moment. Now, think, about, think about the things we focus on, what matters most. Sometimes we really, really, really want our kids to focus on just certain letters. Like MVP. And sometimes as we raise our kids, they, we spend, they spend their whole childhood thinking that what matters most to dad or what matters most to mom is that they're an MVP. Because these days, that's going to pay for college, right? And since college is like a lifetime investment and like costs more than your car and your mortgage and a few other things put together, our kids often hear, I remember telling the girls in middle school, you should start learning to play golf. You know, there's a lot of scholarships for girl golfers in college. And they're like, Dad, you just don't want to pay for college. Still right, though. They didn't take up golf. MVP. A lot of kids hear that the most important letters in their life are GPA. Right, that it's not MVP, it's it's GPA, and so everything rises and falls by how that GPA is, and, and you know, it it some of us put that pressure on ourselves as kids, that we expect everything to be perfect, and we expect to be perfect, and it doesn't take long once you you hit the real world to realize that not everything's perfect, and you won't always be. But that perfectionistic side, if it comes out in parents and all the kids ever hear is MVP or GPA, that they have to be the top of something, they're missing what matters most. What if what my kids need to hear more about is G-O-D? 
Am I saying I was perfect as that as a parent? Not in the least. I do hope over the years that my kids heard and learned that in our family, that church was essential, not optional. Optional. If you raise your kids where church is optional, then they'll raise their kids where church is a, who knows. We don't get to decide these things for our kids. Let's be clear, right? There are no guarantees. What there is a guarantee of is the G-O-D in me loves them more than I do. Jesus loves my kids more than I do. And wow, I love them a lot. How do we help our kids discover who they are in Christ? Number three, our kids need a home to run to, not a home to run from. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Train up a child in the way he or she should go. You know, there is a sense in which we have to let our kids be who God created them to be, not who we wish they were. And certainly not us in littler form. You ever see a dad particularly, but a mom too, try to live out their missed things from childhood through their kids, right? That they, they came just short of the championship as a kid, so they're going to drive the kid to win the championship because they couldn't be proud of the championship they missed. So they're going to be proud of their kid's championship. And the kid learns to resent mom or dad. One of the many ways that we can easily embitter our kids. Do not embitter your children. Do not exasperate your children. One of those words means provoke to anger the other of those words means to make your kids want to give up this is tough language if i if i'm a thousand percent honest because when you're raising teenagers particularly you will be embittered you will be exasperated And so how you, in embittered or exasperated mode, don't pass on that to your kids takes, get this, a whole lot of Jesus transforming your heart. Because your kids will bring you to the edge of you. And at that moment, whatever comes out, will stick with them a ton. Someone wrote that if a child lives with criticism, they learn to condemn. And if they live with hostility, they learn to fight. If they live with ridicule, they learn to be shy. If they live with shame, they learn to feel guilty. Live with tolerance, they learn to be patient. Live with encouragement, they learn confidence. Live with praise, they learn to appreciate Live with fairness, they learn justice. Live with security, they learn to have faith. They live with approval, 
They learn to like themselves. They live with acceptance and friendship. They learn to find love in the world. The challenge in all of this is that you have to still be the parent, not just the friend. When our kids get to be teenagers, we want to be like the best friend. This is part of why we need the family of God. Because I don't know if you know this, but your kid will not see you as their best friend. And if they do, your kid is like one in a billion. What kids do need is a home that is secure. A home that is loving. A home that is respectful. A place where Jesus is loved, where they are loved and respected, where the family loves each other. When they're little, our kids are going to spell love more than anything. They're going to spell love, T-I-M-E. But as our kids get older, they need a home where they would spell it trust, T-R-U-S-T. My kids need a home and seen as a loving, graceful place where they're drawn to, where I treat them as though they are chosen and holy and dearly loved. And you say, well, what if my kids are grown and what if they're not walking the faith? They still need this. How do we help them discover their identity in Christ as young adults or older adults? They need a home where you treat them like Christ loves them like Christ cares about them. You say, what if they don't know Jesus? All the more reason. What if they're not living like Jesus? All the more reason. It's why when people walk through our doors, whether they're 5 or 10 or 15 or 55, 65 and 75, if they don't look like Jesus, they don't talk like Jesus, and they don't act like Jesus, they need us to love them toward Jesus. That doesn't mean we always approve of their behavior. But if all they hear is Jesus would disapprove of them, they begin to believe that Jesus doesn't care a hill of beans about them. It doesn't mean there's not right and wrong. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences. It just means they need to know how God still feels about them. And frankly, once we're Once we're parents of older kids, they need us. Now listen to this. This is ironic coming out of my mouth. They need us to not preach at them. Because if they see me and my kids, even when my kids were teenagers, if they, they, dad, you're just preaching again. They turn me on. I'm going to move on. Number four. Uh, I got a little emotion on the inside today. Number four, my kids need to experience real consequences. Right? Being a parent is not all happy, happy, happy. Our kids need to know. Right? It said, children, obey your parents in everything. That presumes a parent who has taught their kids a sense of respect and a sense of right from wrong. That, that there is some do's and some don'ts along the way. And my kids need a moral compass, a direction for life that includes a healthy respect for an authority and the ability to learn to make right decisions. 
And the learning to make right decisions is tough because the way you learn to make right decisions is by making some bad ones and then having to live with the consequences. And a lot of this um, uh, like discipline thing comes down to will I let my kids experience consequences or not? When they're real little, we're thinking about like methods of discipline, like timeouts versus... But you, know, you, you don't put a 17-year-old in timeout. Uh, we try, don't we? Right? Go to your room. Like, what does that do for a 17-year-old? They're like, yes! I'll just flip my screen on and don't want to come out and talk to you anyway. What are you talking about? Right? See, so what you have to do is you have to find the consequences. They're sort of the natural consequences to their decisions. And you have to learn to not rescue them from those consequences, because the more we rescue our kids from consequences, the less prepared they are for the real world that will not rescue them. This is challenging. This means that we need to help them find their identity in Christ when they fail and when they make poor choices. They need to know that when there are consequences, that their identity in Christ has not changed. You know, sometimes as parents, we're too lenient, we're permissive, we have no expectations. Sometimes as parents, we try to be perfect, we want to be perceived as perfect, and so we have impossible expectations. And sometimes in parents, and I, I see this as pretty popular today, that, that we want to be, um, a lot of modern parents want to be uninvolved, that we want to avoid expectations. None of that really works. There's a balance here. One last thing, what our kids need is to receive more encouragement than discouragement. More encouragement than discouragement. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. If my home becomes a place where all my kids hear is discouragement, they begin to associate that with their parents, with their identity, and with the faith. Being a kid these days is hard. I don't know if you've heard. I tell you, I would not. I'll just be honest with you. These things, make, as much as they make parenting hard today, they make being a kid today or a teenager today ten times, maybe a hundred times harder. Maybe a thousand times harder. And we look at our own childhood and we go, man, it was hard to grow up. Like now you can make a decision at maybe eight years old that will never be allowed to die because it exists forever on the internet out there. You say eight years old? Yeah, kids into things they shouldn't be into at eight, at 10, at 12. Some of us here might be Single moms, you know, in the mode of like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And part of what we need is the family of God 
to point us to Jesus and breathe life back into us, but also as the family of God to say, we'll help. Some of us here might be parents who are just exhausted raising a two-year-old or two two-year-olds. And they need a family of God who will say, we'll be family to you. You might be here as a kid or a teenager wishing you had a better dad or a better mom. And we need to be the family of God in those ways. You might be here and be a dad or a mom that's collapsing under the pressure. Or you might be a parent here with a child who's on the run from God. And what we all need, we all know this, what we all need is Jesus. But in addition to Jesus, we need the community of faith, the family of faith to cheer us on and remind us not to give up. Because what hangs in the balance is significant. Here's what we do know. We all have a father in heaven who isn't going to give up. I'm sure that if, if I were one of the disciples, Peter, James, John, those guys, and I was hanging out with Jesus, you might at times in Jesus' experience with Brian have said that he seemed a little exasperated with Brian. I'm not sure God gets exasperated or embittered. But if it were possible in his humanness, I know how to push boundaries. I feel bad for my parents through, you know. God will never, ever, ever give up. And we need to be the family for each other who will do the same. And I pray these prayers uh, to conclude as we always do. We always pray two prayers here at the end. One is a prayer of salvation. The second is a prayer of application. If you need Jesus today, the gospel is that Jesus came into our world, was born in humanity, God in the flesh, died on the cross for our sins, buried in a borrowed grave, rose to life on the third day, alive today, ascended into heaven, King of kings, and that king of kings wants to be present in my life every day to make me like him. If you need him today, maybe online, maybe here in the room, would you pray with me now? Dear Jesus, I don't deserve you, but I need you. So take my life, please. In fact, take over my life and forgive my sins. Transform my heart. Fill me with love, grace, to honor you. Change me, Jesus. I put my faith in you, and I turn to you now. Pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If that's you and you prayed to follow Jesus for the first time, 
I'd love to celebrate that. I'd love to know that. I'd love to say, welcome to this family. You just got to let me know one way or another, right? Easiest way to do that is a communication card, but you can uh, find me after service. You can tell someone you came with. You can email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N at HarvestChurchEugene.com. A lot of us made a decision like that, but today I hope you're feeling the desire to lean in, not just for our own kids, but for each other and each other's kids, to be the family of God together. If that's you, would you stand as we pray this prayer of application together? Dear Jesus, thank you for our kids and the kids of this church. Thank you for those who've already raised their kids. And thank you for those who are raising them now and those who will in the future. We pray wisdom and strength on all our parents. Help us to come together to point all our kids of all ages towards you and who they are in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. He is good. He is good. We're going to sing.